I'll start with a uh, psychological claim that I venture is true of everyone in this room today. So think of yourself and think of uh, whether or not it really is true. At some stage in your life, I venture, the physical world considered as a whole, tables, chairs, stars, planets, galaxies, the whole lot, the physical world has presented itself to your intellect as something close to a question. The physical universe has struck you as a phenomenon in need of an explanation. Some of you uh, will think uh, that you found the answer to that question. Perhaps question and answer came at once in one psychologically durationless moment of revelation, as you now think of it. That'll be some of you. Some of you will think that you found that on balance there is no need for an answer to this uh, pseudo-question. The feeling that the physical world as a whole is a question is an illusory feeling and it's best pushed to uh, one side, however natural it may be. And for the rest of you, the physical world as a whole will continue to strike you in your reflective moments as it did then as a question to which an answer is required and yet uh, sadly elusive. To have that capacity to be struck by the fact that the physical world as a whole exists and exists as it does rather than in some other way, to have that capacity to be struck by this and find it perplexing is the mark of a certain cast of mind and it's not universal by any means. Anyone who is completely unable to empathise uh, with that attitude would find a good deal if not all of metaphysics pointless, a series of logic chopping or vacuous attempts to smother non-existent problems in waffle and nonsense. But I venture that everyone in this room will have struck in that, uh, be struck by the physical world in that way. Um, and I venture that for a number of reasons, the most unexciting of which is that, of course, a selection effect has operated on those who find themselves in a room uh, expecting to hear a lecture on the philosophy of religion. <coughs> be that as it may, the prevalence of this attitude throughout times and across cultures explains the persistence of metaphysical thinking as an activity in the history of ideas, the attitude is, as Schopenhauer once put it, the pendulum which keeps the clock of metaphysics in motion. Because this uh, perplexity of which I speak is a perplexity about the physical world as a whole, uh, if we allow it to keep the clock of metaphysics in us in motion, then we'll be led to think that the answer to the question posed by the physical world as a whole must lie outside it on the principle that the explanation of something can't lie within the thing that's to be explained. So, physicalism... I define as the view that this perplexity concerning the physical world as a whole is ultimately misguided. It's a natural feeling, but ultimately it's a misguided feeling. There is nothing outside the physical world that accounts for it. The physical world is all that there is. That's physicalism. Religions, I define, as those systems of thought then which see physicalism as false, which say then that there is something outside the physical world. Uh, According to religions, there's something then beyond the physical world which in some way explains why there is a physical world and explains why there's an us to describe it. And each religion specifically, of course, says that its answer is the correct answer to the question of the physical universe. So what sorts of things do the various world religions say that this answer is? And here we come to another divide. We have the divide between physicalism and the religious cast of mind, and now we've got a divide within the religious cast of mind between, on the one hand, those roughly speaking Western religions, which view the answer to the question of the physical world as personal, as a god, and, on the other hand, those roughly speaking Eastern religions, which view the answer to the question of the physical world as an impersonal force. And in these lectures, I'm going to be focusing on the central claim of the Western religions, that is, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, those religions which teach that the answer to the question of the physical world is a personal agent, God. 
the thought that the answer to the question of the physical world might be a person is the pendulum, if you like, which keeps the clock of theology in motion. And it's the workings behind that pendulum that I'm going to be looking at. Now, I'd encourage you to think of my ignoring the traditions of Eastern religions uh, not as narrow-mindedness, but as uh, methodological humility. There's always something paradoxical about someone telling you that you should regard them as humble, isn't there? But that's what I seem to be doing. If I'm to make significant progress in the space allowed by a series of eight lectures, well, naturally, I have to narrow my focus um, onto an area that I can reasonably hope to traverse in eight lectures. And there's an even more ruthlessly pragmatic reason for narrowing my focus in this direction, uh, one that I venture will appeal to many of you, and it's the fact that the philosophy shared by these religions is that which is examined in schools in the paper uh, Philosophy of Religion. So for these reasons, which I somewhat ashamedly admit are not good philosophical reasons, I'm going to be focusing exclusively on the main philosophical arguments pertaining to the Western monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, and to the main claim of these religions, that there's a God. So I'll be looking at this. There is a God, and I'll be asking these questions of it. What does that claim mean? Are there any reasons for thinking it true? Are there any reasons for thinking it false? Those then uh, will be my questions. How will I approach them? Well, I'm aware that these lectures will be being attended by some who intend to offer the philosophy of religion paper in the final honour school of theology, and as such, by some who have yet to have any exposure to philosophical ideas and arguments. So my intention is that the lectures will be suitable for those who start from a position of knowing no philosophy at all. And again, there'll be a little pause where I explain some bit of terminology or something for the benefit especially of those people. But my hope is that even if you've studied philosophy before, there'll be something uh, new in each lecture for you. And for all of you, my hope is the lectures will give you an overview of the conceptual uh, territory which will be useful to you in locating the questions that you either have in your tutorials or will in your tutorials answer particular questions on. And as I travel across this conceptual territory, giving this overview, I'll be travelling in a particular direction, that is, towards a particular uh, conclusion, giving you my assessment of the arguments as I come across them. But I'll do my best to indicate alternative positions to my own that are or have been occupied, and especially to flag up if ever my assessment of an argument differs from any consensus that's been reached in the literature. So, always at my back, I hear uh, Time's winged chariot, uh, figuratively speaking and always literally speaking I can see that clock at the back of the lecture theatre so I won't pause for questions during the actual lecture uh, but what I hope to do is leave enough time at the end of each lecture for some questions and if in any week that doesn't happen by all means stay behind and ask your questions of me then and I'll do my best to answer them uh, now having set out my stall perhaps there are some here who are so confident that nothing they're going to find on it is going to be interesting to them that they want to leave now Title philosophy of religion could mean many things, so if you were here under the hope or expectation it would mean uh, something other than what I've just described, you might want to leave now. But nobody's taking advantage of this escape hatch, so I'm going to press on, and in some sense, you asked for it. Okay. The concept of God. Judaism, Christianity and Islam share the view that the answer to the question of the universe is God. They share a certain conception of this God and the central claim of each of these religions is that there is such a being. Jews, Christians and Muslims differ over much else, of course, as even a cursory examination of any newspaper would reveal, but these often violent differences shouldn't distract us from what is, to me, the even more remarkable fact 
that every Jew, Christian and Muslim will agree with every other Jew, Christian and Muslim about what each of them will say is the most important fact to which the human mind may ever direct itself, viz. the fact uh, that there's a God. I remember in this actual very room hearing Professor Guy Strumser, who you may know is Professor of Abrahamic Religions, give his inaugural lecture. And from this uh, location he said that he'd always found it very remarkable how different these religions are and it was the differences between Judaism, Christianity and Islam that occupied his attention. And that struck me rather because to me it's always been the similarity uh, between these religions uh, that's been the focus of my own interest. So I suppose one man's sort of remarkable and uh, attention-worthy fact is another man's uh, commonplace. But so you might think, oh, I wonder which I find most interesting um, of those two. Anyway, it'll be handy to have a generic uh, term for Jews, Christians and Muslims, and tradition has furnished us uh, with one. They are theists from Theos, God. So my first question will be this. What does a theist mean when they say that there's a God? And I give a characterisation of the common ground in the second paragraph of the entry on the lecture uh, prospectus, which I've printed out to be one of the handouts today, just below the title, overview. By believing that there's a God, theists believe that there's a being who is personal, incorporeal or transcendent, omnipresent or imminent, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, perfectly free, perfectly good and necessary. Furthermore, they believe that this being who has all these properties has created the world, by which I mean the physical universe as a whole, and anything else that might be in addition to physical stuff, angels, if there are any souls, if there are any, and the like. They believe that this being has revealed himself to us in this world. Of course, they differ about what the best source of revelation is, but they agree that he's revealed himself. They believe he's a source of moral obligations to us, and they believe that he's offered us eternal life. And not only do all theists agree that God has these properties, they also agree as to their status. The first nine of the properties are held by theists to be essential properties of him, and the last four are held to be accidental properties of him. Quick interpolation now on the distinction between essential and accidental uh, properties. And this is primarily for the benefit of those who've not uh, studied philosophy before. So if you've studied philosophy before, you know about essential and accidental properties. Uh, you can, well, don't switch off entirely, otherwise you, you can turn to standby mode, to put it in DVD recorder terms, uh, but be ready to switch back on after this. So a thing's essential properties are the properties which of necessity a thing couldn't fail to have and yet still be the thing that it most fundamentally is. And a thing's accidental properties, by contrast, are the properties which a thing has but which it could in principle fail to have and yet still be the thing that it most fundamentally is. So the distinction will be easier to see, I think, if I give an example. So let me uh, take as my example of a thing uh, this uh, pen. Good, I remembered to bring it. This pen. Okay. So this pen occupies a continuous section of space. Uh, that's an essential property of it, I think. And at the moment the pen is being held by me. That's an accidental property of it. If I removed from the pen the property it enjoys of occupying a continuous section of space by vaporising it uh, with a ray gun, then um, it would cease to exist. Uh, what would exist instead would be a distributed collection of molecules that had previously been parts of the pen, but the pen would cease to exist. And the fact that the pen would of necessity cease to exist if you removed from it this property shows that that property is essential to it. It's a property which the pen couldn't fail to have and yet still be the thing that it is. Conversely, if I remove from the pen the property it currently enjoys of being held by me, for example by putting it down there, if I do that, then the pen does not on necessity cease to exist. Indeed, it doesn't even contingently cease to exist. You can see it's still there. 
And so that shows that being held by me is not an essential property of the pen, it's an accidental property. It's a property which it could, in principle, as it has in practice, fail to have, and yet still be the thing that it most fundamentally is. Okay. So, switch back on fully, everyone now, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, so, according to Theism, God has the first nine properties on my list, essentially. They're properties that he couldn't fail to have, and yet still be the thing that he is. So, we might say that they're of his essence, or his nature. And given that one of these properties, the ninth, is necessity, and that says that God couldn't fail to be the thing that he is, they're thus properties that God could not fail to have. Okay? Because God's a necessary being, the ninth property. The necessary being of necessity has its essential properties. The last four properties of God on my list, by contrast, are seen by faith as accidental properties. They're properties that God could have failed to have, and yet still have been the thing that he is. God could have chosen not to create a world, in which case there would have been no world to reveal himself in, obviously. There would have been no us uh, for him to create ob- obligations for, obviously. And there would have been no us to offer eternal life for. So that's why those are accidental. Okay, so I've described the theistic concept of God as the conception of a being who has these properties. If we're going to understand what theists mean when they say there's a God, well then we have to understand uh, what these properties amount to, how they're related to one another. So for the first few lectures I'm going to go through these properties in the order in which they appear in the lecture prospectus, explain what theists mean by them, talk about the conceptual difficulties, philosophical puzzles that they rise, and for the rest of the lectures I'll talk about arguments for and against the existence of the being with those properties. So let me start in a moment with the first property on my list, personhood. All theists then are agreed that God is not simply an impersonal force, something which is either arbitrary or can be manipulated like some piece of supernatural machinery by certain actions one can choose to perform, handles one can choose to pull in the supernatural realm. He's not just a mechanism like that of a bigger supernatural sword. Rather, they say God is a personal agent, a someone, not a something. A someone who has beliefs about things, who cares about certain things, and whom one can thus, in a sense, reason with, not manipulate like a mechanism, but one can pray to in petitionary prayer, and hence make more likely that he'll do certain things than he would have done if one hadn't prayed to him. One can please and displease him by certain actions one can choose to perform. And God himself performs actions in turn in order to affect the world as he sees best. Um, So God is a person. Just have a quick read, if you would, of the first half of the cautionary note at the bottom of the second uh, handout now. So it alerts you to an issue for Christian theism, which I'm rather uh, bracketing off. So bracketing off that issue, then, I say this. All all theists see God as a person. But what is it that makes a person a person? What is the essence of personhood? I'm going to allow myself to answer this question in a somewhat rough and ready way. And my rough and ready answer is this. A person is a person in virtue of and to the extent that they are something, or rather really a someone then, a someone who is rational, who has beliefs, who is to be treated as the object of a certain sort of respect, which we might call moral respect, who reciprocates that attitude in his or her actions, actions which paradigmatically include verbal communication. Now there's a lot of properties in that list, They're not black or white, either you have them or not kind of properties, and by combining them into a statement of the essence of personhood, which leaves it uh, somewhat vague what it means for these properties to contribute to, a person to the extent that they have, and in virtue of having, hmm, these properties contribute, but are they all essential? Uh, Is the disjunction of them, uh, or some disjunction essential? 
this is all being left rather vague and I apologise for that. My excuse of course is that if I were to sort of tidy up this uh, woodiness, get rid of it, this would take us well outside the field of the philosophy of religion. Uh, so I'm going to just leave that on the table for your reflective consideration but you'll find a defence of a theory of what it is to be a person that's pretty much like my theory, indeed I, I acknowledge that I've drawn my theory from it, uh, in the chapter which is now uh, in Daniel Dennett's book Brainstorms, it's on the handout here, uh, under the title Conditions of Personhood. So I'm just going to assume that that's right in what follows. I maintain then that in regarding God as a person, Thais regard God as someone who is rational, who has beliefs, who is to be treated as an object of moral respect, who reciprocates that attitude in his dealings towards us, who can perform actions, actions which would paradigmatically include verbal communication. And according to Thais, not only does God have these properties, he has them, we might say, maximally. God is not just rational in the more or less haphazard way that we are, he is supremely rational. God just, uh, doesn't just have a finite number of beliefs, some true or some false, in the way that we do, he has an infinite number of beliefs and they're all uh, true. God is not just an object of moral respect in the more or less restricted way that we individual humans are, exceptional circumstances perhaps, requiring of us that we fail to treat someone with due respect for a moment or two in order to avert some disaster. No, no, God is an object of supreme and unconditional uh, moral respect. We treat people more or less well. God, by contrast, reciprocates our faltering attitude of respect to him with perfect respect of his own for us. We can perform a variety of actions, but we're far from all-powerful. God, by contrast, can perform any action. He is all-powerful. We can communicate verbally with those around us and through telephones and the like with those far away. Well, in speaking to them, we can often convey a lot of what we wish to convey, but sometimes uh, not much. Whereas God can speak directly to everyone, everywhere, and in doing so, he can convey anything that our finite minds can accommodate. So if I'm right about the essence of personhood then, because if there's a God, he has these essential properties of personhood, what I've termed maximally, to the greatest extent that it's possible to have them. If I'm right about the essence of personhood then, because if there's a God, he has these properties maximally, if anyone is going to count as a person, God's going to count as a person. Essentially, one might say God is much more of a person than any of us could ever hope to be. I wanted to bring this out because one sometimes hears uh, claims to the effect that God, if he exists, isn't a person in the same sense that you or I are persons. And according to my argument, that sort of claim is mistaken. If there is a God, then he's certainly more of a person than you or I are, or whoever will be, but he's equally certainly a person in exactly the same sense as you or I are persons. The claim that he's not a person in the same sense is a bit like the claim that, suppose I did play football, which I don't actually play, but if I did play football, I, I'm not the football in the same sense as David Beckham is a footballer. We might say, well, technically that's wrong. You are a footballer in the same sense as David Beckham is a footballer. It's just David Beckham is much more of a footballer and much better at being a footballer than you are. Um, and in the same way, God is much better at being a person, if you like, than we are. But he's a person in exactly the same sense as you are a person. Again, bracketing off that uh, first cautionary uh, note. Okay. Because God is a person and all, or almost all perhaps, of the persons we come across have one of two biological genders, they're either male or female, well it's natural to assign God a gender and you'll perhaps have noticed I've already done so, slipping into the traditional habit of talking about God as a he. Of course no sensible theist has really thought that God does have a particular uh, gender but because God is a person, it would certainly be more misleading to call God an it rather than either a he or a she. 
So Thais then, I suggest, should be happy uh, to admit that the choice between calling, calling God a he or calling God a she is a matter of indifference. They should be happy to do either. Of course, this is not to deny that certain accidental associations between the genders and certain other properties might well have been formed in people's minds, associations which might make referring to God as a he or as a she misleading if they're not conceptually clear-headed and can see that these accidental associations are just that, viz. accidental. But all of you are clear-headed people, so you'll be able to see that such associations, if any, have formed in your minds between the genders and other properties are accidental. So you'll permit me to be lazy and continue on in the tradition that I've grown up in calling God a he. And if you're not so clear-headed, then feminist philosophy of religion will strike you as a worthy enterprise. That's my uh, mischievous uh, comment of the week, if this was Harry Hill, the sort of mischievous comment of the week thing uh, going on. Uh, You don't have to agree with that. You don't have to agree with anything uh, I say, uh, other than the fact that you don't have to agree with anything I say. That's the thing you have to agree with. Okay. (laughs) That's my confusing comment of the week. I hope the only one. Okay. So that's what it means to say that God's a person. To say that God's a person is to say that he is rational, has beliefs, is to be treated as an object of moral respect, reciprocates that attitude in his actions towards us, us excuse me, actions which paradigmatically include verbal communication. By these criteria, God will be more of a person than any of us could ever hope to be, and I'm going to call God a he rather than a she, because it's a habit I've got into, and it's not going to confuse any of you. None of my arguments will turn on it. If you wish, replace he with she whenever you hear it, and that everything will go through the same. Okay, incorporeality or transcendence. The person that is God is supposed by Thais to differ from the persons that we are in a more radical way than having neither a male body nor a female body. God is supposed not to have a body at all. He is supposed to be incorporeal. What do Thais mean when they say that God is incorporeal? Incorporeality, not having a body, and corporeality, having a body, are obviously two sides of the same conceptual coin. One is simply the opposite of the other. So, I'm going to start by speaking about what it means to say that we have bodies, and if we can understand that, then we'll have a handle on what it means to say that God, by contrast to us, doesn't have a body. And I'm going to argue that actually they shouldn't say that God doesn't have a body, uh, but the fact that they shouldn't say that doesn't show their conception of God to be incoherent, because there's a property conceptually close enough to incorporeality to be plausibly what they have in mind. And so the net result of my argument will be that incorporeality isn't really on reflection the right term for the property that Thais is seeking to pick out here, but transcendence is to be preferred. Uh, That's why I put incorporeal transcendent in these scare quotes on the handout. Um, So this argument of mine will require me to be a little bit less rough and ready than I was in my discussion of personhood. Um, I'm about to do a bit more philosophy then, you might think. So let me start on my argument by asking you to do this. Look at a section of matter that's pretty obviously a part of your body, say say your right hand, and ask yourself, what is it about this section of matter that makes it a part of my body rather than a part of the body of the person who sits next to me or rather than a part of the desk in front of me? Don't say, well, it's connected to my arm rather than somebody else's arm, because that would just push the question of body ownership a stage further back. Well, what is it that makes it your arm rather than someone else's or rather than a part of the desk would be the next question that I'd ask. So I'm asking you to look for the conditions that a particular section of matter must satisfy if it's going to be a part of your body, and for those conditions which, if it satisfies, are sufficient for it to be a part of your body. I'm asking you to look, in other words, for the necessary and sufficient conditions of something being a part of your body. 
brief interpolation now, mainly for the benefit of those who have not come across the terms uh, before, on necessary and sufficient conditions. So you can switch to standby mode if you are happy. You're not going to be told anything new about that. A necessary condition for something is a condition which must be satisfied for that thing to be the case. And a sufficient condition for something is a condition which, if satisfied, will make it the case. The distinction is easier uh, to see if we give another example. So suppose you're sitting a test with a pass mark of 50 or above and 100 questions, each of which is worth one mark. Well, if you get all the first 60 questions right, then there's no way you're going to fail the test, however badly you do on the remaining 40. So we could express that fact by saying that it's sufficient condition for your passing the test that you get the first 60 questions right. But it's not necessary for you to pass the test that you get each of the first 60 questions right. You might pass even if you didn't get each of the first 60 right. Perhaps you got 50 right, then 10 wrong, and then you got the remainder right, and you still pass. So we might express that fact by saying that it's not a necessary condition for your passing the test that you get the first 60 questions right. The only necessary condition for your passing the test is that somewhere amongst these 100 you get at least 50 right. That condition is also sufficient. There's nothing you need to do over and above getting 50 right in order to pass the test. So that's necessary and sufficient conditions. Switch back on fully. So my question is, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for a particular section of matter to be a part of one's body? And I'm going to discuss two possible answers for this question, and we'll see if we find them plausible or not. First one. One might think that the answer is that what it is for a particular section of matter to be a part of your body, as opposed to a part of someone else's, or as opposed to a part of an inanimate object, is for you to know what is happening in that section of matter directly, without being first reliant on finding out what is happening elsewhere. I can only find out where my pen is indirectly, by lights travelling from it to my eyes, or by reaching out and finding it with my hands, whereas I can know what's happening in my eyes directly, where my hands are directly, that is, without first needing to find out something else. So the pen's not a part of my body, but my eyes and hands are. Thoughts such as this might lead one to say one's body is that section of matter one can learn about directly, without first needing consciously to learn about anything else. Understanding oneself by having said that to have stated a necessary and sufficient condition for a section of matter to be a part of your body. However, this doesn't seem, in fact, to have stated on further reflection a necessary condition for some section of matter to be a part of one's body. Consider the fact that I might have had my right hand anaesthetised such that I could not learn where it was directly, what was going on within it directly, just by feel. But I had first to look at it or feel it with my other hand. Then my right hand would have become a section of matter that I could not learn about directly. Nevertheless, surely we would say that this right hand would, even if anaesthetised, still be a part of my body. So I conclude that being able to learn about the state of a section of matter directly is not, in fact, a necessary condition for a section of matter to be a part of one's body. So it could be a part of one's body whilst failing that condition. It might, however, be a sufficient condition, and I'll consider that possibility in a moment, after having talked about another condition which sometimes advances as necessary and sufficient. So the second possible answer, then. Another answer to the question, what makes a particular section of matter a part of one's body that one might consider is that a section of matter is a part of someone's body just if it's a part of the vehicle through which that person directly acts on the world. If I'm to move that pen, I can only do so indirectly, while first moving something else, for example, my hand, then I can move the pen. But if I'm to move my hand, there was nothing I first needed consciously to do before that happened. 
thoughts such as that might lead one to say one's body is that section of matter one can control by direct acts of the will, understanding oneself by doing so to have stated a necessary and sufficient condition for something to be part of one's body. However, this condition uh, doesn't seem to be uh, necessary either. One might think of the possibility that instead of being anaesthetised, my right hand could have been paralysed so that I could no longer move it by direct acts of the will, i.e. I couldn't move it without first needing to move something else, my left hand or what have you. Surely, though, this would still have been a part of my body even if it had been uh, paralysed, still been my hand. And the possibility of a lifelong anaesthetised and completely paralysed person who we would describe as nevertheless, despite this unfortunate condition, nevertheless corporeal, shows that any adaptation or combination of these conditions along the lines of making what it is for a section of matter to be a part of someone's body, it be a part of something that can usually, uh, you can usually either learn about directly or control by direct acts of the will, that's not going to work, or by discussion of the spatial proximity between a section of matter that satisfies one or both of these conditions and uh, this other bit. Okay, so what conclusion can we draw? What's the, what am I trying to get to here? Well, I suggest we can conclude that neither being able to learn about it directly nor being able to control it directly are in fact on their own necessary conditions for a section of matter to be a part of one's body, nor is there disjunction necessary for a particular section of matter to be a part of one's body. However, these conditions are, I'm about to argue, jointly sufficient for a section of matter to be a part of one's body. So let me argue that. In a moment, I'm going to tell you a story about yourself. I'm asking to imagine this thing happening to you. But before I do that, I want to tell you about uh, something in the Ashmolean Museum. The Ashmolean uh, Museum, as you all know, uh, contains many interesting objects, and among these are many statues. And one of these, um, sometimes known as the Adonis Centricelli, uh, is an approximately life-size 2nd century AD Roman depiction of Apollo standing up with the remains of an arrow in one hand and one assumes of a bow in the other. It's quite a lifelike statue. And unlike most statues which have reached us from antiquity, there are no missing limbs or even missing fingers uh, that might, by their absence, detract from the whimsy one might enter into whilst looking at it, that perhaps this isn't a simulcrum of a person carved out of stone, but perhaps this is a real person whose body just happens to be made out of stone. All right, well, I leave that little whimsical thought with you for a minute. That's a fact about the Ashmolean. Now for the story about you. Imagine the following. Suddenly, from your point of view, this room and all the sensory impressions it and its occupants are currently giving you appears to dissolve. You no longer see me in front of you. You no longer hear my voice. The same goes for any smells or tastes you might currently be aware of. Instead, you find yourself looking out into a gallery with some statues from antiquity lined up ahead of you. That's your visual field. Your auditory field now has some subdued conversations taking place around you. Kinesthetically, you feel as if you're standing up with pressure uh, slightly more on your left foot than on your right, and as if you're holding something in your arms which are by your side, something roughly cylindrical in each arm. You're conscious of the smell of fresh air, but a rather dusty taste in your mouth. What's happened to you? Well, in fact, what's happened is that you are learning directly of the state of that section of matter that forms the statue that I was telling you about. And indirectly, through light landing on its eyes, sound waves reaching its ears, and so on, you're learning who is visiting the gallery in the Ashmolean uh, that uh, the statue is in. So you're 
um, locus of consciousness has moved over there, if you like. That you can no longer learn directly what is happening in the examination schools part of Oxford is, of course, quite a startling uh, fact for you. But that your locus of direct knowledge has moved to the Ashmolean is not the only startling fact to which you have to become accustomed. So has your locus of direct agency. Here in the examination schools, the limbs of that body have just gone limp, just sort of you know, collapsed like a rag doll in the chair. You're no longer able to control them by direct acts of the will. But at the same time, the limbs of this statue in the Ashmolean have become supple. Um, you're able to animate them by direct acts of the will. When you will your right hand to rise, it is the stone right hand in the Ashmolean that does so. You direct your body to raise your right hand to your face. You see in your visual field this stone right hand uh, coming up in your visual field towards your face and so on. You will your right hand to squeeze the object it finds and you feel your fingers clench around the stone, uh, little cinder of uh, the remains of that arrow, whatever it is. Okay. So in short, rather than learning directly what's going on in the body in the examination schools, being able to animate that by direct acts of the will, instead you're able to learn directly what's going on in the stone body in the Ashmolean and animate that by direct acts of the will. It seems then, doesn't it, that, well, you've just moved. You're now inside this stone body. Suppose all this were to happen, wouldn't it be that the statue would have become your new body? Well, I think it pretty obviously would be. So I've argued that if this statue in the Ashmolean were to become a section of matter that you could learn about directly and through doing so learn about the world surrounding it and were it at the same time to take on the property of being one that you could control directly by direct acts of the will, that would be sufficient for this stone body to become a new body for you. And if that's right, then the two views that I've looked at state conditions which, whilst not necessary, either alone or as disjuncts, for something to be a part of one's body, are jointly sufficient for a section of matter to be a part of one's body. So if it's correct that these conditions are jointly sufficient for a particular section of matter to be a part of one's body, then God's incorporeality, his not having a body, would require for it to be a real property of his that there not be any part of the physical universe that he could learn about directly and no part of the physical universe that he could control directly. So just hold on to that result for the moment. That's the result that's pertinent to this. And we'll come back to it. So to sum up, I haven't got on very well in finding the necessary and sufficient conditions for a section of matter to be a part of one's body. Sorry about that. I have found two conditions that are, I've argued, jointly sufficient for a section of matter to be a part of one's body. So let me turn to the, consider the third of God's properties on my list, omnipresence, and then I'll be able to tie up these loose threads, I hope. Omnipresence or imminence, then. According to theism, whilst God is transcendent, he is also imminent. Whilst God is not subject to the limitations of the physical universe, he nevertheless permanently pervades it with its, his mind and agency. We human beings are not everywhere in the sense of able to acquire beliefs about everywhere directly, able to control what happens everywhere directly. We're somewhat less than omnipresent. At the moment, we're all examination schools present. In my thought experiment, we suddenly stopped being examination schools present and started being uh, stone body and ashmonium present. But God, by contrast, is omnipresent. Without needing to operate through any particular section of matter distinct from others around it, he can know what is happening anywhere and produce any effect he wants anywhere. Directly. So God's omnipresence entails that he's not anywhere in particular, in the sense that by being there he's absent from being somewhere else, he's not absent from anywhere. He's able directly to learn about and directly to affect everywhere. So we're now in a position to see, are we not, a conceptual tension between the property of incorporeality and omnipresence. God's omnipresence entails that he's both the conditions that I argued were jointly sufficient for the universe as a whole to be his body. 
Each part of the universe is a section of matter he can learn about directly. Each is under the direct control of his will. It seems then that because God is omnipresent, we should say that rather than being incorporeal, the universe as a whole, the physical universe as a whole, is his body. Okay. In short, because it's a sufficient condition of being corporeal that one can learn about the state of some section of matter directly and can control it directly, that it's a necessary condition of being incorporeal that one cannot do this for any section of matter, Yet because it's a necessary condition of omnipresence that one can learn about every section of matter that there is directly and control all of it directly, then it must be a necessary condition of omniscience, sorry, omnipresence that one be corporeal. So that argument seems to me irrefutable. Why the theist then should say that the universe is God's body. Irrefutable, but perhaps a bit uh, too much to take in all, all at once if I just deliver it uh, from the front orally. And so I have actually put it, that little uh, thing as a quote on the handout. <clears throat> so, has our hero shown that the theistic concept of God is incoherent, and thus that Judaism, Christianity and Islam must be false? Uh, if he has, then we can all go home uh, ten minutes early. Perhaps sadly then he has not, because theists have room for manoeuvre here. They can stop a uh, tactical withdrawal from the claim that they traditionally wanted to make, becoming a rout. Um, how? Well, Theus can claim that by describing God as incorporeal, they simply mean that there's no section of matter distinct from others that is especially privileged as that which God learns about more directly than he learns about others, or over which he has more direct control than any others. In other words, they can maintain that when they describe God as incorporeal, they're simply saying that there's no particular place where God is, in the sense that by being there, he gets to be absent from being somewhere else. They can then go on to say that when they describe God as omnipresent, they're saying that there's no section of matter that is not one he knows about directly or that is not under his direct control. In other words, they can say that when they describe God as omnipresent, they're saying that there's no place where God is to any extent absent. So God's incorporeality is his not being present anywhere in particular, and his omnipresence is his not being absent from anywhere in particular. Okay, so if we take God's being incorporeal as his not having any particular body distinct from others within the universe and his being omnipresent as he's nevertheless known directly what's happening everywhere and able to control everything directly everywhere, well, indeed, I'd admit, there is then no tension between incorporeality and omnipresence. However, in taking incorporeality in this way, I'd argue that Thais would be seizing on an accidental, albeit universal, and you remember the difference there, an accidental, albeit universal feature of those corporeal beings that we know, that their bodies are distinct from others within space, and making that feature central to the concept of corporeality from which incorporeality is defined. So in conclusion then, on the issues raised by the second and third properties of God on my list, incorporeality and omnipresence, I'd say that incorporeality is not the best term for the property that Thess are, or really should be, seeking to pick out here. I'd argue that it would not be incorrect to say that the physical world as a whole is God's body, or part of his body if they're parallel universes, for the physical world as a whole satisfies, with regard to God, two conditions which are jointly sufficient for a section of matter to be a part of your body. Every part of the world is one he knows about directly. Every part of the world is one he can control directly. I suggest that a better term, then, than incorporeality would therefore be transcendent. God transcends the physical world as he is not in any way constrained by it. To pair with transcendence, one might therefore prefer imminence rather than omnipresence. God's imminent in the physical world as there's no part of it that he is in any way ignorant of or that he can't control by direct acts of the will. So finally on these issues I'd like to draw your attention to a talk by the same 
philosopher who I mentioned earlier about conditions of personhood, Daniel Dennett, and I think you'd all enjoy it as an interesting sort of coda to this point. Um, and it's called Where Am I? And it's now chapter 17 of that book, Brainstorm. So it's in the same book as the previous one, if you have time to read it. So, in conclusion then, I've looked at the first three properties in my list of properties that are the first attributes to God, his personhood, his incorporeality, or my preferred term, because in the end I decided, well, I don't think you should say that uh, God doesn't have a body, you should say that he has the body uh, that is the universe. So his incorporeality, or my preferred term, is transcendent. Oh yeah, you can still say he transcends the universe because he's not constrained by um, anything in the universe and he could exist even if there weren't a universe. Preferred transcendence, and his omnipresence, or my preferred term, imminence. I've argued that his personhood should be understood as his being rational, his having beliefs, his being treated as the object of moral respect, his reciprocating that attitude in his actions, actions which paradigmatically include verbal communication. I've argued that if there is a God, then he's more of a person than he is if you remember that bit. And I've argued that God's incorporeality is a somewhat misleading way of referring to the fact that there's no section of the physical universe at which he's more present than he is at anyone else. Have a quick look at that cautionary note again, you'll see why I might need to nuance that. But anyway, that's what I've said at the moment. His incorporeality is a somewhat misleading way of referring to the fact there's no section of the physical universe at which he's more present than he is anywhere else. And his omnipresence is a way of referring to the fact that there's no section of the physical universe from which he is to any extent absence. These are alternative ways of referring to his transcendence on the one hand and his imminence on the other. Next week, I'll start by looking at the fourth property on my list, omnipotence, and I hope to see you then. Thank you very much for your attention this morning.